Good morning. You are listening to KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the World Wide Web at KPOO.com. This is Prison Focus Radio. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. It's going to take people who are willing to fight, not people who want to negotiate with the enemy. Good morning, beautiful people. This is 
Prison Focus Radio here on KPOO San Francisco 89.5. I am your host, Nube Brown, and we are going to continue with the commemoration, the remembrance of the 10th anniversary of the historic California hunger strikes. And while we've been spending this month commemorating that uh, this, this 10th anniversary of these hunger strikes that uh, were actually a the three hunger strikes that culminated in 30,000 people participating and the, just an incredible show of, of solidity and shared humanity. We are going to continue the education and spotlight uh, really the, the beautiful um, implications of what these hunger strikes meant um, really what they what they meant, what they mean to us today and how we need to move forward uh, to gain the release of these men uh, and truly understand what is taking place, continuing to take place in our California prisons. This is a multi-billion dollar industry, um, a part of the prison industrial complex or more uh, the prison industrial slave complex and how we really uh, need to um, inform our, our activism and our organizing through an abolitionist lens to, uh, to dismantle this really sick system. So thank you for joining me this morning and we are going to be hearing from some of the voices um, of the uh, of these historic California hunger strikes. And here we go. We are going to start with James Baridi Williamson. Yeah, Baridi, just go ahead and tell us, you know, just give us a statement about the historic California hunger strikes. Yes, uh, which, which, which has many lessons. Many uh, lessons uh, uh, came out of that. One uh, 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 one of your most uh, biggest and strongest ones is where you had uh, incarcerated persons of all uh, background, uh, uh, race, ethnics, ethnicities, and, and nationalities coming together. And, and the dynamic uh, that, that kind of evolved like that took over a period of time. I remember when uh, they first slated us uh, for... Uh, be put in, in, in a uh, death sentence of uh, what they call snitch parole or die. And so uh, since the first one wasn't an option, we were pretty much slated for death. I remember that uh, me, another uh, New African, and, 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 a, and a, a white boy and, 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 a, and, a, and a Mexican all came together. We got the law library. We filed our first petition in 1991. We had been there. We had been there a little over a year. And we seen how inhumane and degrading it was. Uh, so we filed a petition uh, uh, seeking a, a relief from the courts. And uh, that was the first collective effort that, uh, that began uh, to show at least some, some of us was already uh, uh, understanding the importance of solidarity work, working there. We was in a class struggle. And we had uh, uh, began to uh, uh, remove those barriers that kept us from working together and, and begin to work together. So a period of time, uh, uh, that activism continued on. Uh, I remember in, 
in 2003, uh, by, uh, let's see, that was prior to uh, the short quarter, uh, we had came together and we had filed because uh, it's a, it's a multi-billion dollar industry that, 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 that was uh, served to the, uh, the upper class uh, through, through uh, uh, what they call uh, vendors and quality packages and, and, and uh, uh, canteen and everything. So we was contesting the monopoly and we went into uh, raising an uh, antitrust complaint. And uh, again, uh, of all racial nationalities came together and uh, they, they just had one vendor, and that was Walker Horse, and they was tied to a former correction officer. And we knew that they were stopping our families from sending us food and everything so that they they, they can uh, monopolize. So we broke that, and they had to let other vendors compete and be a part of it. But nevertheless, uh, my whole point is how in class struggle, activism is the key. So that was an important lesson. So uh, going to the library, and, and we was wondering because we knew they was you can use erroneous, unreliable uh, information that they would classify confidential, so you couldn't challenge it to keep us in it for decades. Uh, the court just uh, recently ruled that they looked at it and it seemed that that, that that was the case uh, in that recent ruling in the Ashton versus Brown case. But one thing we, we was trying to do was bring the court's attention to what was going on over these decades, and we was running to shut doors. So we was wondering why. And uh, 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 we, we found out that CDC was sending uh, letters to, to the uh, court saying that since they opened up Pelican Bay Shoe uh, and put the worst of the worst in there, that violence in, in the CDC system had went down. That was totally false. It had it went up tremendously, uh, 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 and the, the contrast was they was justifying keeping uh, uh, bodies to fill those, those shoes, but we didn't know the court was in there with this. Yeah. So, so uh, uh, when we found that out, that means we don't got no access to the judiciary. So we were filing complaints with the legislators, Gloria Romero. Send them to Polanco. These was was an oversight of the CDC system, and they would come visit and, and, and make false promises. But decades again, we remained in there. So, so, and, and what we was learning was that this piece of the system has tentacles all into the government. Government, so it wasn't just the executive branch. CDC falls under the executive branch, but you see the tentacle over to the uh, judicial branch. Well, they were shouldn't do it when, when, when uh, fairly looking at our complaints and seeing that we should be in that tortured decades. And then the legislators who had the trust strain, uh, 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 there was an article came out in the prison legal news, uh, the, the prison ghost union was courting them, taking them to Hawaii and, and, and courting them to uh, pass these draconian laws. So now we're up against all branches of government. Mm. And so that's what the hunger strike went up against and begin to expose, reveal, and begin to pull back the layers and begin to uh, face it head on. So that was one of the most important lessons. And then, you know, the legislators want to start out hearings. And then, you know, the uh, court court finally put our, 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 our complaints in front of 
about Jewish, there was going to be a partial and the non-bias to get a fair hearing, and that's in the afterwards case. And uh, the governor, even though he had, uh, Brown had went all the way over to Ireland, the protesters over there uh, holding up signs telling, hey, why are you torturing people over here in California? He had to come back home and tell the, the uh, head of the CDC, hey, go meet with those guys and, and resolve that stuff. But that's what we was up against the beast, and that's how we faced it head on, refusing to back down. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. You had no idea that you're making, you're filing these uh, these grievances, but they're but they're being manipulated by CDCR, and for decades they have been. And how did you find out that they have been so corrupt and basically using the law, first of all, as a weapon against you guys, kind of making their own laws and their own regulations? Well, some of us, some of us, you know, uh, the thing about actually, some of us was already investigating, researching, and looking at it, but we wouldn't get no no one that they hear us. So we, we, we knew we was uh, we was uh, we was uh, 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 receiving it and, and learning uh, information, and one of them I remember there was a pamphlet written by the National Lawyers Guild Prison Project, and this how that pamphlet by uh, Heineken I can't remember his him or her first name it was I think they might have been a couple but it, uh, they uh, it decided that they, they you have sixty seconds remaining. They spoke a little bit about this. And so, you know, that plus, like I said, the prison legal news article came out and showed you how they was courting, courting legislators to uh, 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 take them up there and get them to uh, uh, turn, a, turn a blind eye to us. So all of that was revealing itself slowly but surely, but we just had no one that would listen to us until the, home, uh, the HS. And then during the HS, we began to now have uh, an uh, opportunity to reveal that. Wow, my God, all of those decades. Mm -hmm. But it can't break us. No, it's not. Huh? Yeah. But the, but, 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 but the, the damage they did to, to the body and the mind as far as uh, physical damage, they still have repaired or, or compensated for. All right, unfortunately, Baridi and I got cut off before we could have our wonderful soft goodbye, uh, but we are going to hear from Ann Wiles now, one of the uh, lead counsel on the Ashker v. Brown, which has now moved to Newsom, uh, class action lawsuit. Right on. So um, this is a little background. I'm Ann Wiles. I was involved in the hunger strikes as a lawyer um, from 2011 today because we're still monitoring our class action lawsuit having to do with the elimination of solitary confinement where uh, alleged gang members in the shoe were suffering and um, had to exist for decades in uh, security housing unit Pelican Bay because, um, and they had, they had to suffer indefinite solitary confinement. In other words, if they did not debrief or die, they would never be paroled or never get out. And our lawsuit, the class action lawsuit, Ashbury Brown, ultimately got them to um, be released from the shoe, and they got sent to a number of different prisons in the state as a result of that. And it, it was a victory of sorts, of course, because we got them out of the shoe, but then the way that this CDCR treats our prisoners is still shocking. The level of violence, the level of retaliation I hear every day from various family members about how their, their um, loved ones have been beaten up, have 
suffered incredible injuries. These are young prisoners, old prisoners. And um, so the, the violence, the brutality, the hatred, the statism continues. Unfortunately, we, our governor is too, still too soft. Gavin Newsom, um, he, um, he vetoed the 1064, our, you know, bipartisan bill that was going to, you know, basically attempt to limit the abuse of confidential information when people are validated or in other ways, um, you know, treated worse in our prison system. And just today, there is some good news in the sense that some of our main plaintiffs in our lawsuit, Richard Johnson, who was at San Quentin for years and uh, was in the shoe for decades, and uh, Paul Redd, who came out <clears throat> through um, the public defender in San Francisco and Chase of Boutique, he's out, and most recently, who was the lead rep for the New Africans in the state of California and in the CCR, he just got parole. So, you know, there is some good news. On the other hand, Todd Asker, who's been in uh, the Kern Valley uh, administrative segregation now for three years because he cannot, um, he is producing, um, and we're representing him in a retaliation suit because the state is saying he's too, he has too many security issues to, to put him in general population, even though they were about to do that, and then they've written it. Um, anyway, the whole story. But <laughs> anyway, right. um, and and also, uh, Danny Troxel. Now, Danny Troxel and Scott Ashley, two men who were in shoe for decades, and they pursued this lawsuit, which we, in, you know, the Center for Constitutional Rights openly took over, and, you know, over there at the court, of course. And Danny Troxel is now on a phony charge uh, in a RICO case against the uh, Aryan Brotherhood, and he's been now in this filthy, horrible uh, jail in Sacramento County, Sacramento Jail, which is subject to a lot of... Uh, lawsuits and other things having to do with these terrible conditions there. So um, it's a mixed bag in terms of our prisoners, and, but uh, the struggle continues. I mean, it's shocking to me that state, um, all these raw bonds, I think we theoretically can put pressure on Bonda's office as the Attorney General now to, to maybe institute some serious reforms. Um, Zubay, if you have any questions, I'm here. Well, you know, this is fantastic. Um, I, I love how you kind of just, you know, you really summed it up pretty quickly and also just brought us right to the present. And I think um, what I really want to ask is uh, uh, through the lens of the incredible inside-outside support and collaboration and solidarity that it took in order for this class action lawsuit to be filed in the first place after these, you know, decades of um, these men being uh, tortured by solitary confinement and working so hard to get their voices out um, to the people out here. And so what can we do um, out here now, this present day, uh, to to really facilitate forward this, um, uh, you know, their their release because they most of them are still inside. Most of them are still yes, being, you're right. Right. So what can we do? I mean, even in just the simplest sense, um, yeah. What can we do from that lens? Of there is obviously something people out here can do. Well, there's there's the old traditional things that we could do, but I still think they're effective. With you know, we could take delegations to our uh, various assembly people or state senators to constantly say, we want, you know, sort of from an abolitionist point, we want to basically limit the number of people that are put in our prisons. We want to do away with the debriefing. Now, debriefing is, as you know, is what um, 
they have concentrated on it to, great, to, to a great extent since our lawsuit. So they're even relying more and more on debriefing. Even when it comes up, we've had a number of parole hearings of our, of our clients, of our plaintiffs, and I've read a lot of these transcripts, and the, all the parole commission, <coughs> commissioners and often the, the DAs involved with that procedure are demanding that these people debrief before they can get parole. So it's the, the debriefing doctor, the debriefing procedure is the most vile, um, you know, horrible, dehumanizing phenomenon because what it does is make a man or woman basically, you know, and, and they go back to your childhood in terms of the so-called autobiography of what you've done and what you're supposed to pinpoint everybody you've ever been in a cell with or I, mean, I could go on and on, but it is unbelievably dehumanizing because for the person that has to be grief, it's like they're betraying themselves, they're betraying their comrades, their, their loved ones, their friends, their family. I mean, and so... So we, I think we should focus on briefing. We should also should focus on validation. The whole validation system, which is part of the briefing, but um, in, the, in the sense, if you're validated, you know, so-called gang member, then you know you have to debrief to get out from that, and maybe theoretically be paroled. But the whole validation system is so so uh, ethnically chauvinist, so racist, because for the most part, uh, the Latinx folks in this state are singled out as young people and black. I use as well for basically the gang members, and that that follows them through uh, the California uh, gang uh, database, and then they're basically stigmatized. You know, this can happen when you're 10 years old, 11 years old, 12 years old, so you're stigmatized, and then once you maybe get arrested, you get into jail, then you're you're already uh, basically stigmatized to be in that particular group, that particular organization, and, you know, unless theoretically long-term um, you debrief, you can't get out from one of that. So... This is a system, a $13 billion system, CDCR, that is so profoundly corrupt, and I can tell you hundreds of different, you know, just outright corruption. It's very corrupt, it's deeply violent, and over the years, as a lawyer in, these, in this case and in some other cases, I am trying to get to the heart of why, why do these prison guards, you know, not all of them, obviously, but a huge number of them, why are they so hateful? of our prisoners. Why do they want to dehumanize them? And I think to a great extent, it, at the heart of it, is a form of statism, where these uh, guards, they, they are so feeling um, disempowered as human beings in their own minds. So when they have power over their prisoners, they, they, they get off on dehumanizing that person, committing violence against them, making them suffer and beg. And, and so... So the whole system is rotten to the core. And so, you know, we can't overthrow overnight. But I think we have to really take advantage of Bonta SRAT and do them as, as maybe limited as needed as our governor and actually try and put out proposals that really deconstruct the system. I mean, you can begin to do that through the forms along the lines of, you know, the whole debriefing and attacking that and these various other uh, procedures within the CDCR that, this is something that we can do and we should continue to fight. So talking to our, our representatives and talking to our Congress people and um, even going to our city councils and getting resolutions along these lines. So, you know, it's like, as, as Arturo Castellanos and I talked during the hunter strike, it's like it's happening from all different um, angles of how you make change, how you, how do you reform the system, how you reform the state of California. But, you know, also, obviously, this 
13 billion dollars that our citizens our fellow citizens and all this spend to support this corrupt and violent system i think that's also a big argument in terms of going for representatives and writing op-eds and articles and doing interviews and talking to our family members and just you know bringing this up because to a great extent as you know you guys this system is so opaque and so invisible to so many californians well thank you very much and you take care and thanks for all your great work all right if you are just joining us this is prison focus radio i am your host nube brown we were just hearing from ann wiles one of the lead counsel of the ashker v Brown, which is now Ashker v. Newsom, uh, class action lawsuit uh, that was filed by the Pelican Bay Short Corridor um, hunger strikers, as well as the representative body and, of course, the government. Then the California government. Before that, we were listening to James Baridi Williamson, one of the signers of the agreement to end hostilities. We are still commemorating the 10th anniversary of the the historic California hunger strikes. We are going to take a quick musical break and then come back uh, with uh, more voices from the historic California hunger strikes. Security housing unit or shoe terms. Go ahead, John. Um, the vast majority of people who ended up in shoe, um, within the term of the shoe terms, we actually were also housed in the shoe um, in the 1970s when we first came to prison. Mm. A, a great many of us who ended up as part of the indeterminate shoe term class 
for people who were raised like during the 1960s and the 1970s. So it's not that we were not politically conscious people, even mm -hmm. at that young of an age. We were politically conscious people because we were introduced to the movement that existed at that time. It was virtually impossible to not be under the influence of the movement if you came up during that particular period of time and stuff. But we were not politically mature people. Um, we were still kids. We were still like 15, 16, 17 years old. I was like 20 when I first came to prison. And a lot of the guys who came to prison at that time, they were 17 years old, 16 years old even, when they were arrested. So the vast majority of us, that particular generation of people, like we came to prison as kids. But in particular, like that generation of people who came to prison broke the link between like the, the people who took us under their wing and schooled us while we was on the streets. We had a responsibility to do the same thing with the generation that would come before us. We honestly were not able to do that right there because they locked most of us up. And at the same time they locked us up, they introduced narcotics to the community. Um, they, they flooded the community with narcotics, as a matter of fact. Um, those particular, that particular class of um, brothers are the same ones who ended up in the shoes, within the term of the shoe times, later on. Um, you know, can I ask? Can I ask you, yeah. we know, okay, so we know that that was a delivery. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Uh-huh. A deliberate assault on a generation to yeah. um, basically uh, yeah. make sure that there was not a, quote, rise of a new black messiah. Right. Well, that's, that's and, um, would you also consider that to be genocidal? I would, I would definitely consider, yeah, I would definitely consider that to be a form of genocide. Okay, great. Uh, thank, I mean, I, not to take that lightly, it's just, again, we're we're really, uh, we're going to be bold about this education, and I think we just need to call yeah. things what they are, and um, I, I guess I just want to point out that one of the things that I've always learned from you guys, or what I have been learning from all of you this is so wise. I mean, you're just really like our, you know, kind of our elite elders on the inside. Um, you know, you always remind me about the uplifting of humanity and staying as positive and, and, and keeping grounded in, you know, yeah. uh, we claim no small victories, but we will uh -huh. take our victories nonetheless. Yeah. Stay positive, yeah. stay moving forward, stay in the struggle, stay revolutionary yeah. love, um, yeah. all of that. But, um, it's important to call things what they are and uh, yeah. wiping out yeah. a or trying to uh, take down a generation of basically a generation of activists and beautiful potential minds to right. uh, to liberate our people um, is yeah. deliberate and, and should be considered not only a form of genocide and it, but it, it's because of that a crime a continued crime against humanity. I agree with that. I absolutely agree. Um, the assault on the humanity of the communities, on communities of color, the assault on the humanity of women, like, mm -hmm. really does, in my opinion, amount to, like, um, cultural genocide. Mm -hmm. You know, um, 
like, um, you know, really trying to wipe out um, and change the psychology of a people um, to where you don't know who you are. And drugs, the influx of drugs, drug use, all of these things result not just in physical death, but they do, in fact, result in, like, a complete wiping out um, of a, a generation from, again, the, the use of the N-word, the acceptance of the use of the N-word, the use of the B-word, and the acceptance of the use of the B-word. All of those things are part of, in my, in my mind, that's part of a, a cultural genocide. The assault on the humanity of people is a continued um, engagement in genocide. And genocide is it's not just simply like this physical uh, slaughter of people, but it's also a psychological slaughter of people. In particular, it's a psychological slaughter of people, um, this, this economic slaughter of people, um, this total effort to subordinate people to, again, in this instance, patriarchy and the, maintain, the maintaining of um, white supremacy. I think that's genocide right there. Yes. You know, you used a phrase before, which I, I found quite remarkable, that you were enthusiastic yeah. about uh, participating in, in the hunger strike. Right. Um, that, again, you had, uh, you had suffered already decades okay of solitary confinement, uh -huh. and yet where, where you're, it's like every aspect of your being is being assaulted, and yet you're somehow yeah. able to maintain some semblance, again, of your humanity, of your self-respect, right. of your dignity, yeah. that is like, that, that incensed you even more. We know that many people were broken, and we know that that was the intention with sending you to Pelican Bay was to break you, um, right. you and true. you in the general you. And um, I, I guess in saying that, I just I wanted to uplift that that is a remarkable um, a determination for how you felt at that time that you were enthusiastic because we know that it's almost like I hear you saying it was almost you you were able to embody this and so it was almost like your responsibility to do this hunger strike because clearly even though. It culminated in 30,000 people participating yeah. in the hunger strike. Yeah. The first one did yeah. not, but many right. yeah. people had been broken already. Right, that that's true. didn't have the capacity to think about being enthusiastic about right. putting their lives on the line to end this torture. Yeah. They yeah. were I succumbing. Um, and I think that it is this, that this kind of tension between but it's a positive tension. It's a, it's a, the kind of the essence of what it means to struggle forward. And as Hillary right, Lucy Kane says, you know, recognizing we are our own liberators. Um, yeah. Do you want to talk about that some more? Yeah, I, I really think nobody that we do have a responsibility. We really do. I think that anybody that's been subjected to oppression. Like anybody that, once you recognize, that like 
whatever your truth is, like when you sit down and you, you look at everything, you study, you read, you engage in conversations, you do everything that you need to do in order to best understand the reality of your situation. And when you come out of that right there with certain types of truths, here's why this is happening. I think you do have a, I think you have a responsibility to, to do whatever it is that you can do to make sure that this don't happen to nobody else. I really do believe that, like, we have that responsibility right there. Like, I mean, and, and I understand, you know, like, you know, we live in this kind of culture, we, and we always have lived in this kind of culture where the emphasis is always on, like, like, I do what I want to do the way that I want to do it, and can't nobody tell me how to do this or that. But the, I, I think that, you know, like, the, the, the truth is the truth. And I do think that, you know, like, we have a responsibility. When we learn certain truths, we have a responsibility to act on those truths. And how we act on the truths, it's going to look different because everybody don't, act on things the same way, everybody don't interpret things the same way, but we do have a responsibility to act on it, you know, and because this is all about making a contribution to ensuring that this don't happen again, or as some people might put it, because this is about liberation, like everybody has a role to play in that process right there. And what one of the things that we have not seemingly been able to accomplish collectively is that like we tend to take this position that because like this person don't act in ways that I think he or she should, then that that that, that puts that person in the camp that runs contrary to the way that I think. And People on the right, the conservative thinking, conservative thinking. Uh, this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. They don't think like that right there. Like, conservatism is the ideology that binds every last one of them together. And because that's the ideology, and they relate from this ideological um, perspective, they see these things through this ideological lens. And... The conservative has the conservatism has developed along the same lines that capitalism has and everything else has. We live in a racist, classist, sexist, misogynistic, homophobic, etc. society. So, like these ideologies has formed along those lines right there, and so you know, I mean, it, it's like, like. When, when, when we start to think outside, liberation really does mean to me that you see things outside of that box right there. Liberation, but in order for you to be able to say, like, I'm engaged in liberation, just using the word liberation, terms like that right there, those are critically thinking terms right there. And those, when you start to use terms like that, it's because you've developed an understanding of some kind um, that you understand how it is that we got to this point right here. And, but we shouldn't be in, in different camps. Like the, the ideologies that we develop 
as a result of these truths that we reach, it's, it's supposed to bind us together. And so, like, you know, it's, I, I'm, I'm trying to, it's, 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 I think that we just really do. I think that we have a responsibility uh, to, to make a contribution, to get together with other like-minded people. I think that we have a contribution, I mean, I'm sorry, I think that we have a responsibility to engage in the kind of things that are going to promote and lead to liberation. I think we have a responsibility to do that right there. Well, definitely you have taken those, you have walked your talk, all of you. Um, that you, you have know, 60 you, seconds remaining. You really are an elite uh, group uh, of men. Uh, it was great talking to you. Hey, be sure to give my love and respect to Malik. Can y'all hug each other for me and take care of yourself? Okay, love you so much. Okay. Senator, that love is much better okay, to you, okay? <laughs> all okay, right. Okay, sis, bye-bye. You take care now, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs> All right, now we're going to hear from Penny Schoner. I'm Penny Schoner. I'm with Prison Activist Resource Center and the Prisoner Hunger Strike Solidarity Coalition. Um, I am a paralegal and I have done uh, visits, legal visits at Pelican Bay and at Corcoran and Tehachapi and a couple of other places back in the day, about 10 years ago. Um, we have noticed that the hunger strikes stopped in large part solitary confinement, but the Pelican Bay staff that were there when the hunger strikes happened are back at the torture again. Not nearly as bad as it was that we know of, but it does isolate new prison prisoners, and we are noticing that the hunger strikers and their influence has made a huge difference. There are no more scalding hot tank immersions that had happened in about, about 25 years ago at Pelican Bay. As far as I know, there are no more potty watches now that we know of, which was contraband watch, and that was a hideous torture. Um, we exposed that in articles and uh, lawsuit that came out of San Jose finally stopped it. Um, the hunger strike has stopped some of the arbitrary beatings by the staff that used to be widespread. Now it's not quite as much. Now prisoners have the know-how to complain and know their voices can be heard at uh, the Office of Inspector General, which is a federal oversight, in the California State Legislature, different committees, in the newspapers, and all over the world, thanks to supporters of the hunger strike who uh, have formed websites for the hunger strikers. The hunger strike laid new foundations for prisoners to communicate with the outside world and with each other instead of cowering in fear when the torture occurs. I'm not talking about the leaders of the hunger strike, I'm talking about a large percentage of the people who were affected by the hunger strike and the uh, awful uh, staff abuses that followed. And we reduced the CDC population from more than 200,000 men and women in California prisons to fewer than 
95,000 incarcerated today in CDC. And the youth facilities have been closed in favor of more humane ways of dealing with youth offenders. We hope this continues to ha happen and widen to include all offenders in CDC. It certainly isn't the rehabilitation that is in their title. So that's what I have off the top of my head. Wow, that's, that's a lot, you know, and I would love for you, uh, if you don't mind, some more off the top of your head, Penny, if you want to talk about, um, you know, the, the importance of the Prisoner Hunger Strike Solidarity Coalition uh, in terms of uh, helping to facilitate uh, what ended up being 30,000 prisoners hunger striking, that relationship they all had with the, um, with the organizers and activists of, that, uh, of those hunger strikes inside. California Families Against Solitary Confinement in Southern California uh, has been instrumental in forming the Prisoner Hunger Strike Coalition. Um, they have led us with their knowledge of how to approach the legislature. They have led us with free access to the names and uh, histories of the men that they represent. I mean, if that hadn't been there, we wouldn't be. And after Prisoner Hunger Strike Coalition formed, we had about 35 other organizations, or not other, but organizations that belong to that circle. The numbers have uh, kind of faded a bit, but I, most of the supporters of the hunger strike are still with us. Um, Verbena uh, carries the hunger, hunger strike active list, the VHSS active list, that, and she posts a lot of uh, the findings that we get. Uh, a huge contributor has been Deborah Stimson, who does, who does searches every day and posts relevant articles from across the world that are, you know, in effect, that help the Hunger Strike Coalition, help the men inside, the women inside. It's, it's been, the, the um, enthusiasm has not stopped. And the legislature got, the state legislature as well as the federal got educated about what solitary confinement was about. The UN got educated that way too. Um, the whole world. We still hear from people in India and Southeast Asia who are very interested in what's going on here. It's amazing. That is. Do you want to make any last uh, the, the statements about how you feel like, um, you know, our elders now of this, of the hunger strikes are faring? A couple of the elders have uh, been able to get out and uh, some of them are wearing ankle bracelets, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But there are about, according to one estimate, about 3,500 elders in the California prison system that are eligible by the number of years they've served to being reviewed for sentence uh, uh, review and released. And uh, so our work is far from over. 
Jenny, thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate you spending some time and uh, uh, keeping people aware of how they can uh, help and making sure that these guys are not forgotten. And don't uh, forget the Stanford. Don't forget the San Francisco Bayview newspaper. And yes, thank you so much. I don't want someone else to do that. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. All right, Penny, thank you so much. Really, I mean, not only for taking this time, but really, I mean, you, you've got, uh, you know, you've got uh, blood, sweat, and tears equity in this for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. You, babe. All right, thank you too. We'll talk to you talk soon. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye. All right, next, Dolores Canales talks about some of the early outside organizing. Uh, and um, some of the the insidious tactics that CDCR was taking at the time. A few months before the J- July 2011, he got transferred to Pelican Bay, and you know, as soon as he got there, they updated him on. He was in the the um, D5, and he sent home this letter. And he sent a list with like about 200 organizations and he asked us to mail copies to all these organizations. And so I put, I didn't know what to do. I put the letter over an email thread of uh, this group that I was in with formerly incarcerated women and Deidre, Deidre said, I know people that are working on this. Do you mind if I forward this letter? (laughs) And I was like, absolutely not. And then Mary Ratcliffe, uh, she sent it to Mary Ratcliffe. Mary Ratcliffe emailed me and said, you know, she introduced herself and she said, would you mind if we uh, use this letter, you know, for the July issue? And I was I was like, of course, you know, please do. I, I said, my son sent it for a reason. And now uh, he was not a representative. I never claimed he was a representative. But at that time, they were all told, you know, there was some of them that were told, you know, anybody that has outside resources, uh, that will get this information out, you know, get it out. And so, um, and so, uh, yeah, so it was in, in the Bayview. And then I freaked out because I didn't even know they could do this. Um, that, that paper corrections.com or whatever it's called. Uh, they put my son's letter on their website with like a spoof, um, uh, answer from governor Brown. Oh, and they were like, Dear Mr. Martinez, thank you so much for helping to reduce the inmate population. The more of you that starve to death, the better, or, you know, stuff like that, right? Whoa. And, um, yeah, we support you in this endeavor. And because of such a great, you know, you should get an early release. I didn't even know, so I, I like, freaked out because I didn't know Mary at the time. And I'm like, how did they get this? You know, how, how are they having permission to use my son's letter like this? I didn't know that once it was published, they can just pick it up off another website and use it too. And um, yeah, that happened in July 2011. Oh my, oh wow. This is your introduction. Well, not really, wow. Was that like your introduction to how this system actually works? Yes, and then I met Manuel LaFontaine. Deidre introduced me to Manuel LaFontaine. Me, Deidre, and Manuel LaFontaine were all in a, um, a hunger strike together. Manuel went the longest <laughs> for the first hunger strike. And I had only known Manuel through, you know, we would do radio interviews together and through emails. And I remember, I'll never forget the day he called me up because I did a radio interview and he said, I just want you to know 
you know, the feds might come after you, but you have our full support. And I literally had to pull over and get my breath because I thought, what the heck am I getting myself into, you know? Right. Yeah. And then, and then so the work began, you know, meeting everybody and just growing and family and coalition and yeah, yeah, it's been quite a, quite a, a history for me too. And, you know, everything. Wow. So was your son, um, so, so did, did he do all three hunger strikes? And I'm, I'm thinking, tell me, was he in Pelican Bay or was he, which, where was he? When he was... For the hunger strikes, he was at Pelican Bay and yes, he was in all three of the hunger strikes. Whoa. How was that for you? Oh, it was just, it was, it was terrible. It was intense. It was, uh, so stressful. It was like, it, like you can't even begin to imagine. And, and then, you know, because I had come to know, well, when I first found out, when I read all their information, I started digging and researching, you know, prior to the hunger strike when they started announcing it. And I started seeing how they all wrote, you know, they're going to go on this hunger strike till you meet our demands. And having a personal experience with prison, I knew that PDC was not going to just jump and meet their demands, that there was going to be, you know, that they would have no problem letting them just starve to death so so it was um you know it was really intense and uh and it was just like God. and then though at that time like i said when the first hunger strike started my son had only been in solitary for a decade then i started meeting everybody and reading all the stories of people that had spent you know 20 30 40 years and i said oh my god i always thought they would let them out someday you know but i realized you know, as a matter of fact, the third hunger strike, we all went to go visit together, and I was like, why do you have to do this? Please just let us, you know, things are changing. And, you know, my son literally told me, do you think I want to, do you think we want to do this? But what other choice do we have? You tell me, you tell me, because they've been doing this for decades, and, you know, what other choice? And, you know, and then you know that you have to support them, because, you can't talk them out of it because what other choice do they have? Did you did you start um, CFAS California Families Against uh, Solitary Confinement? Did that start when during at, with the first hunger strike, or was that happening before? What happened is uh, during the first hunger strikes, we all started coming together. You know, all the family members and. Uh, we, you know, every day we were organizing a rally, right? We'd be at the scene and say, okay, where are we going to meet at tomorrow? Or what should we do? You know, so right there, we wouldn't leave without saying, this is where we're going to be tomorrow. And, um, and then they ended the hunger strike on July 20th is when we got the official word. Um, and I was on my way. Mainstream media had finally picked it up. Kim McGill called me over to Chuko. She said Channel 7 was going to be there. I was on my way over there, and she called back, and she's like, they just got word the hunger strike ended. Like they were no longer interested in the interview, you know, but it started picking up interest. And then that was the first hunger strike. But then what we immediately realized was, you know what? We need to let CDC know that just because the hunger strike is over, we're not going away and we're not backing down until our loved ones are out. We made a collective decision as family members that it wasn't just about getting them to eat. It was about, ending the use of long-term, exactly their demands, you know, right. abolishing the use of long-term. And at that time, they were not calling for the abolishment of solitary. They were saying to abolish 
indefinite solitary. So we always wanted to be, uh, you know, in in sync with their messaging and their words. Right. And and so, um, so yeah. So we uh, so then what we did was we said let's go to Sacramento. And there's we have pictures. We organized that trip to Sacramento, and all the Bay Area people met us out there. And CDC first we met at a at a park and. You know, we rallied and then we marched down to CDC in Sacramento and CDC was like shocked that we were out there because they were like, <laughs> the hunger strikes over, what are they doing? And we made it perfectly clear that we're not going away. And then we started organizing our first meetings as family members. You know, we even had uh, annually, we'd have all the Bay Area would come down. We went to the Bay Area a few times, um, you know, just whether there was a hunger strike or not, we were uh, meeting collectively like that. And I really wish that we can continue to work on solitary, um, but Governor Newsom has made it absolutely clear he won't have anything to do with any kind of bill that has anything about solitary. Even um, the ACLU or somebody was telling me they had this bill and they tried to word, leave that in there, I think for pregnant women. And he, he said, if you leave that in there, I won't sign it. So they had to remove it. And um, oh man, wow! So yeah. he vetoed all the effort for what was the the bill to end confidential inf- uh, the use of confidential oh, yes. information. He, yes. he vetoed that, and now you're telling me that he's not going to sign any kind of bill that has to do with solitary confinement. Yeah, and Which that is- came straight from somebody that was working on a different bill around with pregnant women, right? Damn, that and is some. To put that in the bill. And yeah, he, you saw what he did with confidential information. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and like I said, when we first won the settlement agreement, mm-hmm. I was like, look, you guys, I'm not trying to be like the negative Nancy here, the naysayer of bad news, but solitary confinement still exists. This is an amazing settlement agreement, but as long as solitary confinement exists, they will continue to use it. Uh, Dolores, I totally appreciate you just doing this on the fly. You're beautiful. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. How are you doing and how is your son doing quickly? Um, I'm doing good and my son still continues to experience retaliation. You know, I definitely believe it's because uh, I've been so vocal, but um, he tells me to just keep going. And so I do with his 110% support. And I'm very grateful for that. And that's what gives me the strength and the courage to keep on. All right. Beautiful. And you know, you got your, you got our support as well. Yes, always. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, Of course, sister, you take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. That is our show. Continue to stay with us and continue to become more educated, more aware about this very important, um, issue around solitary confinement, so the dismantling of solitary confinement, the dismantling of the parole board, and uh, creating the alternative, which is a community release board, also with a strategic release board, dismantling confidential, the use of confidential information. So again, please stay with us, and also to continue to demand the release of our elders that are in um, California's prisons all throughout the 35 prisons here. 
please call the governor at 916-445-2841 and demand he release our elders, especially those of the California hunger strikes. Continue to educate yourself by going to www.prisons.org and sfbayview.com, both places uh, feature the articles and the voices of these incredible freedom fighters of the historic California hunger strikes. Thank you, and again, please help us uplift their voices in shared humanity. Get ready for Work Week with Steve Seltzer.